0: I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. I don't know what we're yelling about! It will top the list.
1: I'm Georgie Borman, a journalist, author, and commentator with West Coast Roots. This is a 180 Cast Breakdown session, where I take a critical look at the big ideas that shape our world and how people are changing their minds. Welcome to the 180 Cast. Hello, welcome back to the 180 cast. I'm Georgie Borman. Today, I am recording in the heart of the great Northwest. It is luscious. It is so green, it will make your eyes hurt. And it smells amazing. And also, it's been raining for three straight days. So there's that. If I sound a little bit different, it is A, because I am in a totally different room and somebody else's house and somebody else's office And also, I woke up with a very sore throat, and there has been a virus that has gone through the whole family, including the baby, so if I sound just a little bit congested, that is why. But tis the season. Tis the season for colds and such. Anyway, this is a breakdown session, which we do every other week, where I talk about news and the big ideas behind those current events that impact you, and we break down and analyze some of the highlights, the main takeaways from the 180 Cast interviews, which are exclusively dedicated to examining how people change their minds. And generally, we take messages um, from the flip phone, from you, and look into a little bit of conventional wisdom when it runs up against the facts today Uh, That segment is dedicated to a certain facet of the abortion debate brought up by Tulsi Gabbard in the Democrat debate earlier this week. So we've got a lot to cover. Before we get started, though, don't forget that you can follow the 180 cast on Twitter and Instagram at 180 cast and go ahead and tag me. Don't be shy. Okay, let us get into the top stories.
0: I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. I don't know what we're yelling about!
1: It will top the list. Okay, we've got to talk about Syria and the Kurdish situation. We have a lot of people dead. We've got 218 civilians, including including 18 children and five medical personnel, and uh, some 200-odd uh, fighters from the Kurdish-led forces, and 171 from the Turkish-backed uh, Syrian factions. Who have been killed? There is mayhem. There is death. There is massive displacement of the people in the area and a humanitarian crisis precipitated by the sudden withdrawal of about a thousand troops from northern Syria by President Trump. Now, this situation is a little bit complicated, but basically, what we have is Trump has said, "Well, we're we're taking out the troops." knowing full well because he had come out of a meeting with President Erdogan that he was planning an onslaught into the area and he still withdrew the troops in the mindset apparently that this is somebody else's problem it's not our problem well it still seems like it's a big problem because hundreds of members of the Islamic State have been freed because the Kurds have been tied up trying to protect their territory and spreading their resources too thin. So hundreds of members of the Islamic State have been freed as well as um, their, their families. And there is mayhem and chaos, which of course ISIS is, or the Islamic State as we now call it, is taking advantage of. So this idea that we're all wrapped up, all wrapped up, dealing with the Islamic State because we've overcome their caliphate um, and, and taken away any territory gains that they may have had, that could very easily turn the other direction depending on how we handle our foreign policy. And this is a, an issue that a lot of people who didn't were hesitant about voting for Trump see as a saw as a problem because. Trump doesn't seem to have any clear ideas of what the heck he's doing in terms of foreign policy. He said, he tweeted, of course, because that is how Trump communicates with us, he tweeted that this is about ending, quote-unquote, endless wars. So we pull out 1,000 troops out of a a key area where we have been fighting the Islamic State, where we have been uh, allies with the Kurds, and now we have this mess on our hands This is from the USA Today. The SDF, which is the the Kurdish-led forces, warned that Turkey's planned invasion would, quote, have a major negative impact on our war on ISIS and will destroy all the stability achieved during the past years. So we could be going backward in this. And even though Trump has said in a statement earlier this week that he's slapping sanctions on Turkey, as well as a heavy tariff on steel coming out of Turkey, uh, Erdogan reportedly said that he's not concerned about the sanctions, even though Trump asserted in in his statement that they are, quote unquote, powerful. And uh, he said, in that statement, I've been perfectly clear with President Erdogan. Turkey's action is precipitating a humanitarian crisis. Of course, we know that. And setting, the posi- setting conditions for possible war crimes. Yes, we know that. It seems like pretty good reason to stay there. But it, anyway, it continues. He says, uh, we may be in the process of leaving Syria, but in no way have we abandoned the Kurds. I'm sorry, this is something that he tweeted. We may be in the process of leaving Syria, but in no way have we abandoned the Kurds who are special people and wonderful fighters he said that on tuesday this is what this is what really puzzled me right because i read the white house statement and this is what it this is what it says right so trump initially said that this is about ending the endless wars and pulling out of situations where we don't need to be in and putting America first. He said, As I have said, I am withdrawing the remaining United States service members from northeast Syria. As United States forces have defeated the ISIS physical caliphate, United States troops coming out of Syria will now redeploy and remain in the region to monitor the situation and prevent a repeat of 2014 when the neglected threat of ISIS raged across Syria and Iraq. A small footprint of United States forces will remain at the at Tenth garrison in southern Syria to continue to disrupt remnants of ISIS. So we're getting out of Syria because we have no business there. But also we're staying in Syria and we're trying to get out of the endless wars in the Middle East. But also we're staying in the Middle East. So these troops are just being redeployed in the same area that people have been uh, isolationists have been complaining about for years years and years and years and years and years. As long as I've been paying attention to politics, that why are we in the Middle East? Why are we nation building? Why are we propping things up, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Well, I think that this is a great illustration of why we're propping things up because when you remove the powerful presence of the United States, even if it's a small footprint, and you say, we are not going to keep our word, we are going to pull out on our allies, this is what happens. People say, Rand Paul, etc., libertarians, love to say, it's not our business, we can't be the world's policemen. Well, look what happens. I think foreign policy is a lot more complicated than any of us have been, have been, Understanding, There is a lot of nuance to the situation. And now we are put in a no-win situation because the troops have been withdrawn. So we're putting, put, we have put ourselves in a position of sanctioning a NATO ally, sanctioning a NATO ally, right? So Turkey's supposed to be our ally, but at the same time, they're causing death and mayhem. But there's no way to kick Turkey out of NATO because all NATO decisions have to be unanimous, So this is a no-win situation. And avoiding this kind of no-win situation required skill. It required experienced, nuanced foreign policy, not just this end goal of ending forever wars. And Trump, uh, the White House apparently met with Democrats earlier today. Pelosi said, well, what's your plan for the Middle East? And Trump said, I plan to put America first. And she goes, that's not a plan. That's a goal. That's what we're looking at here. We're looking at a president who has a goal, a very broad, nebulous idea that we're ending forever wars without any good plans in place. And this is what happens when you put somebody in the White House who is is more of a celebrity than a statesman, who doesn't have the appropriate experience or the appropriate senses about him to Poland people who know what they're doing, who would not put us in this kind of situation. And now, of course, Moscow is mediating the situation between Turkey and the Kurds and Syria. Moscow has now stepped in and is mediating and they've agreed to be the guarantor of protection for the Kurds along with Assad's regime to protect that part of Syria from the Kurdish invasion. So that's awesome, right? So we've had Russia, another major world power, rush in to fill the vacuum because they needed help. The Kurds needed help. And yes, yes, let's just let's let Russia step in and cement their own interests in the Middle East. That's such a great plan. Why didn't I think of that before? let's let the Kurds be beholden to Russia now because now they owe them one. Does that sound like a good plan or does that sound like Trump doesn't know what he's doing? Sorry, he's done a lot of great things, okay? I like the tax cuts too. But this is is inexcusable. And this is exactly why so many Republicans, call him never Trump, call him whatever you want, were so hesitant, or ended up not voting for Trump at all. It's this kind of situation that we feared would happen. Yes, I said we. I said we. Okay. I did. I voted third party. There you go. So, if you don't want to listen to me anymore because of that, I, I understand. That's that's your prerogative. But it is what it is. You have to meet. You have to meet a certain bar for me to vote for you, no matter who you are. You, you've got to meet certain standards, just period, in general. And and Trump didn't meet my standards. Also, this might be somewhat controversial, but I'm just going to leave this issue with a little thought. What if, what if we had done the same thing to Israel? The Kurds are a persecuted minority. Their language has been stamped out. The very name Kurds has been stamped out. They're now called like mountain people or something like that in in the northern areas of Turkey. And they want a homeland. They want a country to call their own. Does that sound somewhat familiar to you? Right. But it's no, no, no. This is a tribal situation. You know, Israel, the Palestinians, tribal situation, the Kurds, the 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 Turks, Tribal situation doesn't concern us. Doesn't concern us. I know they're not exactly the same, but it's just something to think about. They want the same thing that Jews wanted, to have a nation of their own where they could be protected and safe, to be a sanctuary. And now we've put that in jeopardy for the Kurds. Moving on let's talk about the Chicago Teachers Union strike. This is interesting. About 360,000 students won't get the education that their parents' tax dollars are paying for because the Chicago Teachers Union has gone on strike after months and months of painful negotiation with the city on not just compensation, but a variety of other things. So here's here's some of their demands. They want a 15% raise over 3 years plus an additional 230 million of teacher pay over the course of contract of the contract. And they also want the city to pay out unused sick leave, which can get very expensive very fast because people like to save up their sick leave and then cash it out when they when they leave for good. And they also want this is allegedly according to the city from the meetings, they wanted to shorten classroom time by 30 minutes in the mornings. I thought the kids weren't spending enough time in class, right? I've heard that a lot. I don't know what it's, I mean, it could be a little bit different in Illinois, but I've heard, there's certain standards that you have to meet in Washington state that you have to spend a certain number of hours in the classroom to be passing the, the standards that we have in the state and they also want more um support staff and this is this is the tricky thing right so they're kind of in gray legal territory with the strike because they are allowed to strike under state law for compensation and working conditions but does desiring more support staff like special ed teachers librarians nurses counselors do the, does that count as working conditions, right? Does that count as something that they are allowed to strike over? I don't know. But, he, I mean, <sighs> if you're not a parent, you don't, you might not quite understand how difficult it is to rearrange your plans, when you are counting on one thing to happen, like mm, putting your kids in school for most of the day and then suddenly having that rug pulled out from under you and wondering, wow, what am I going to do with my kids? What They're being cheated out of an education and also I have to figure out what to do with them, either stay home and not work or find a babysitter and basically you know, wipe out the earnings that you would have earned that day. It's this whole big fiasco because the city and the teachers union can't uh, be adults and decide something so that schools can remain open and teachers are actually doing their job and educating these kids. That's what they're being paid for. And to put a little context on it, the the Chicago um, teachers are some of the highest paid teachers. So they start out at about $53,000, which is higher than the median wage, I believe, in the area. And it doesn't cap out until like $110,000. And the median wage for a Chicago teacher is about $75,000. It's much higher than the rest of the state so the the starting salary is the highest in the state and the the median and and the cap are among the the highest in the entire state and according to uh, Illinois Illinoispolicy.org the salaries the compensation for teachers has grown 75% faster than those of private sector workers. So you can talk about oh does it keep pace with inflation 3 years 5 years really, you're looking at, let's compare it to the the rest of the people who don't have the luxury of of working for for the local government. Um, Yeah, 75% faster, and property tax collections have grown twice as fast as the median income in Illinois. So it seems to me that teachers are the teachers are asking for a lot and i understand it is so difficult to be a teacher there are teachers in my life that i have talked to and it is an extraordinarily difficult job and one of the things they're asking for is smaller class sizes and the city said um, um lori lightfoot the mayor said that they are happy to provide that so there are enforceable goals that they want that they will put in the contract for making sure that class sizes are smaller And paying support staff more, which should attract theoretically better employees. But can we just be like, can you just be adults about this? There's only so much money in the pot. There's only so much money in the pot. So the Chicago um, Teachers Union is already making a lot of money by multiple standards, by according to the median wages in the area, Money doesn't grow on picket lines, okay? So here's a nifty idea. Let's just, let me just, let me just sum this up. Here's a nifty idea. There's only so much money in the budget, okay? So here's the idea. If you care so much about getting more support staff, if you want that, you need to sacrifice your own compensation goals as a teacher to get that. Because that's how budgets work. You have to balance them. You have to make sacrifices. And it seems like that would be a better bet because teaching is so hard, as I just mentioned. It can be incredibly frustrating, especially given all of the the regulations that are put on teachers, the the inability to discipline uh, students who cause a lot of trouble, et cetera, et cetera. Having enough support staff could make the difference between loving your job and actually hating it. Because anywhere you look, any job, your job satisfaction is way more likely to come from what's happening in your job, the people that you're interacting with, the things that you're doing, than the paycheck that you get every two weeks. Right? The pay is a big part of it. A lot of pay can keep you in a crappy job for a really long time, in a very difficult job. But... Ultimately, your job satisfaction is going to come with getting into the classroom, being able to teach kids to see those aha moments that they're getting it, being able to get kids the resources that they need, whether that's through the nurses, through the librarians, through the counselors, special ed teachers, all of those support staff that they mentioned. That's all really, really important. Having those people there to back you up in in your job as you're the point person in, in educating these kids that's critical. And if that's really important to you, then you need to look at sacrificing your own compensation goals to make that happen. That's how you come to the table and get a deal and negotiate properly out of a good faith position is you can't ask the world of somebody knowing that they can't give it to you without going into massive debt if they can give it to you at all. And and chi- the Chicago public schools already have a lot of debt. You have to make sacrifices. And ultimately, I think that that would be, that would turn out better overall in terms of job satisfaction. And at the end of the day, you become a teacher not because of the pay, right? You become a teacher because you love to teach. So let's focus on that. Moving on. I have a couple points to make from the Democrat debate on universal basic income. So here is what Andrew Yang has said about universal basic income. This is one of the key tenets of his platform. Take a listen.
2: The description of a federal jobs guarantee does not take into account the work of people like my wife who's at home with our two boys, one of whom is autistic. We have a freedom dividend of $1,000 a month. It actually recognizes the work that is happening in our families and our communities. It helps all Americans transition. Because the fact is, and you know this in Ohio, if you rely upon the federal government to target its resources, you wind up with failed retraining programs and jobs that no one wants. When we put the money into our hands, we can build a trickle-up economy. From our people, our families, and our communities up, it will enable us to do the kind of work that we want to do.
1: Okay, so he's got the right idea in the sense that most Americans don't want to work for the federal government. And he's got the right idea in terms of of putting money in people's pockets, right? This idea that Americans can spend their money better than the federal government can, so just give them money. This is why tax credits are so favored by Republicans because it's just a cash, you know, refundable tax credits, are, they're just a cash payout, basically, instead of food stamps or WIC or, you know, name your name your program or any jobs programs or anything like that. Okay, so let's just lay out the basics really quick of, of UBI. There's There's a couple different versions. Version A is no more welfare system. Just get rid of all of that stuff, all of those hundreds of programs, all that bureaucracy, all those rules, all those means means testing, and just get rid of that, and then we'll give everybody a flat amount of money, and they can do whatever they want with that, and it should be enough to sort of cover their very uh, basic needs in terms of existing on this planet. That is, is favored by a lot of people on the right who see the welfare system as leeching off the American taxpayers, but understanding that we, we need some sort of a, of, of a safety net in our society where we're, we're not letting people fall through the cracks and, and starve on the street and things like that. So that's, that's favored by a lot of people on the right. And then there's version B, which is you keep the welfare system basically the way it is, and then you have an opt-out And that's favored by the left. So you can opt out of food stamps, whatever, and choose to take the basic income instead of that. And that is what uh, Andrew Yang says that he is favoring right now. It's an opt-out system because, of course, uh, how could you possibly be a Democrat in 2019 and say, I'm going to get rid of all of these safety nets Including things like social security, right? And Medicare, right? We're going to get rid of all of those things and and just give people money. That's and that's a huge voting block too, right? A lot of a lot of jobs are on the line if you were to completely just wipe out the welfare system. So a few points that I wanna make about universal basic income to sort of help you digest this and come to your conclusions and just some things that I find interesting about it. One, it removes all pretense that the welfare system is a quote-unquote safety net and not just straight-up redistribution. And you see this in Democrats' platforms. is it's They are embracing the idea that redistributing the wealth is the explicit answer and is inherently just. It is the answer to problems of poverty and it is inherently just, meaning that is something that we should be doing. And if we are not doing it, that is immoral. That is the standard Democrat position in 2019. Redistribution is the answer. You can see it in Sanders and Warren's Medicare for All as well, right? Because they, they want to you know wipe out in, insurance plans and not mess with any of that and just say, let's just socialize the whole thing. And nobody has to pay for for anything, no matter what um, what kind of income they 're bringing in. So I just want to talk about the conservative argument just real quick. The conservative argument for ubi is that it eliminates government waste fraud and abuse, right People talk about this all the time it 's a bipartisan thing. We need to get rid of waste fraud and abuse that 's you know that's a that 's a valid talking point, right and then of course it it eliminates all of that overhead of paying the bureaucrats to administer these programs. So the idea is if we're going to have welfare let's make it simple, transparent, straightforward. Okay, some pretty that's, you know, that's 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 fair. That's fair. Um it's a fair point to make. What is often neglected in in this debate though when you're looking at universal basic income and you're like, "Man, what an elegant solution." That sounds like exactly what we need because people do spend their own money better than the government can spend it, and you're getting rid of all the overhead, and there won't be any fraud because there won't be any means testing, period. That's a that's an elegant solution, and it appeals to a lot of people who maybe would would rather that we not have any of these programs. And not have any redistribution on that level. And just basically pay for just essential government services. You know, like, like the libertarians. <clears throat> I think what is being neglected here, and I just want to point this out for your consideration, is that there, if we were to institute a universal basic income, there would be a massive culture change. Massive culture change. Because think about it. Everybody is getting $1,000 or however much it, it would end up being, $1,500, whatever. There's no more stigma for long-term dependence on government assistance. No more stigma because everybody is getting it. Everybody will be long-term dependent on government assistance. So there's no, there's no sort of push from the culture to sort of get back up on your feet and start taking care of yourself again, and that's what these programs were initially supposed to do is help people get back on their feet so you're you're eliminating um you're eliminating that aspect. Of welfare. You're eliminating the stigma that comes with it because everybody's gonna get the welfare. It's just like social security, right? There's no stigma in taking social security or being completely and utterly dependent on social security and your retirement because everybody gets it. It's exactly like that. Everybody gets it, no more stigma. And of course, what's that what that is going to lead to is less of a motivation for people to go find work to just hustle, whether that's moving carts uh, from the parking lot into the Walmart or selling coffees or whatever it is. If you can sort of just eke by on $1,000 a month, maybe you, maybe you're homeless, maybe you're not. You know, there's no shame there, right? Because you're entitled to do that. That's your right. That money is your right. So this is just going to become one among many, quote unquote, rights, like your First Amendment rights or your Second Amendment rights. And that's the way that that people are going to think of it. And then the result, of course, ultimately, overall, is a permanent intergenerational underclass of non-workers. Okay, you think that welfare culture is bad because there are certain pockets of America where people are chronically dependent on welfare. You think that that's bad? Just wait. Just wait until you get your universal basic income, which is basically like lifelong social security. If you think, and if you think that this is going to keep people from living paycheck to paycheck, which is a big talking point among Democrats, you're wrong. You are just wrong. Because you can make a lot of money and still live paycheck to paycheck because the tendency of human beings is when they get more resources, they expand their lifestyle. They buy bigger houses. They buy boats. They get fancy cars and have car payments. They eat out a lot. All of these things add up. And you will still live paycheck to paycheck. I, honestly, guys, I guarantee you, Cody and I, we wrote a book about how to retire early. We understand budgeting. If you give people $1,000 a month with no financial education, with no guarantee that they have the discipline to handle that, and you just give it to everybody, you will have the exact same amount of people living paycheck to paycheck. You will. I guarantee it. And that's not to say that there aren't any other benefits to this idea besides eliminating a massive bureaucracy and waste, fraud, and abuse. Because there will be some cases where if you're bringing in $2,000 as a household every month, that's more than enough for one spouse to stay home, right? To stay home with the kids, which is what most mothers want to do on some level is be home with their kids and not work full time. Or maybe they need to take care of an aging loved one, which is another huge problem that our culture faces right now because we don't have enough long-term care workers to take care of all of the aging uh, baby boomers. That would, be, that would be undeniably a benefit of this situation. That's an upside. But it will come at an immense cost to the culture overall, to this idea that you're an American, you can get back up on your feet There's there's no harm in in taking help when you really need it in in unemployment and and things like that. There's there's no there's no shame in that. But this idea that you can get back up on your feet and take care of yourself and take care of your family, that's going to be gone. Gone because everybody will be dependent on the government. That's the way I see it. And then on top of that, sorry, I'm making so many subpoints, but there's just a lot to talk about with this because it's a fascinating idea. And if we don't talk about it in the right way, I think it's going to gain a lot of traction, and then we'll get ourselves into a really bad situation where now we're stuck with this thing. And uh, I personally don't want that to happen. So the final point that we have to make though is how is how would all of this be paid for? And this is a sticking point with. A lot of people, even on the left is, how are you going to pay for something like that? Well, Andrew Yang's plan is that we're going to have, um, we're going to have basically a national sales tax and we're going to have basically 10% on everything, uh, from every stage of production from raw steel to the final automobile that's being made from that. And then plus a carbon tax and a financial transaction tax. 10% on all of that. So as you can imagine, the cost of goods is going to go up by a lot. So until that happens, until price inflation hits, there are going to be some people who are really happy with this, who are sitting pretty, who are getting exactly what they felt that they needed, who are staying home with the kids, etc., um, but eventually, it's all going to catch up because you have to pay for this somehow. And you can't finance all of it forever with debt, even though there are some people who believe that that's exactly how you should finance everything, is uh, just by going further into debt. Um, that is, is not a wise plan in the least. So those are my thoughts on universal basic income. It is time to move on to highlights from the 180Cast interview with Eric Cooper. That was episode 30. Can you believe we've made it through 30 episodes? That's crazy. I feel like I started this podcast yesterday. But we have. We have made it through 30 episodes. So, as usual, I'm going to play a few sound bites for you that I think highlight the key takeaways from this interview, explaining why he, as a dedicated member of the GOP, decided to step down from his vice chair position and officially join the Libertarian Party, which I found very interesting. I am always happy to talk to people who have switched parties. I think it's A fascinating conversation that is not had enough, whether you're switching from Democrat to Republican or from Republican to Libertarian or Libertarian to Democrat, whatever. Uh, If if you are in that boat, I would love to hear from you. And you can get in touch with me at 323-999-1802 or on Twitter at 180cast. So I'm going to go ahead and uh, play some of these highlights for you.
2: The, f- the first thing is just that they don't care and that they lie, the Republican and Democratic parties. Everybody is so turned off by politics these days um, because they have not seen anything improve over any number of years. I mean, it simply has not been working and there's really no reason to believe that it's just going to magically get better.
1: So that's key takeaway number one from my conversation with Eric Cooper is both major parties have alienated voters. The GOP alienated a lot of voters with the, the terrible animosity of the, the primary of 2016 and the ensuing drama of the general election with Donald Trump being the nominee and democrats have alienated a lot of people because they've swung so far left so far to the left so quickly that it's leaving a, a lot of people sort of in the lurch with a lot of motion sickness wondering what what is going on
2: i guess part of my change was also the world changing around me and a realization of that you know what what i joined the republican party for It was not and is not today. And even though I I held on to the belief for a while that maybe it would come back around or maybe it was still worthwhile to be a member of the party, uh, eventually I realized that, or I felt that that wasn't the case. I was doing some campaigning for the Republican Party a few years back and I got a lot of comments from people who, this was just after 2016, people were saying, you know, I don't want anything to do with the party. So I knew that the Republican Party has alienated a number of people. I'm sure the Democratic Party has as well.
1: When people feel like they've been betrayed, and that things have changed around them sort of without their consent, it's much easier for those people to consider other options that they never before would have considered, even if their basic ideology, their basic value system hasn't really changed. And so if people are you know, disgusted with the GOP or they're dis- disgusted with Democrats, they might say, well, you know what, I'm going to go join some other party. And I know it's a third party and I know that they don't, they almost never win, but the, they're going to treat me better. They're not going to lie to me. i i I'm going to put my trust in these people because I've been burned by these other major parties. It's much easier for for people to consider a third party when the two major parties are not healthy in the sense that they are representing broader coalitions uh, within America and are not controlled by small factions. And I think that you see that in both major parties where you've got the the Trump faction that is in control of the GOP, regardless of what you say about the establishment, blah, blah, blah. The president basically is, is if the president is is uh, a Republican, he's basically in charge of where the party goes. And the same thing with the Democrats, where you have the most far left who are controlling the narrative there as well. So it's much easier to consider moving to another party when you have two parties that are not uh, representing your your interests or you may feel forgotten by them. The other thing that I took away from Eric Cooper's explanation of why he switched from uh, being a Republican and being heavily involved in Republican politics and campaigning to being a libertarian
2: part of what carrie was saying that uh struck me more than anything was really the passion that she had for it it wasn't a matter of the issues so much that it was that there are people out there willing to fight for it and it i guess it really just occurred to me about you know how much she was putting into the fight for libertarian ideas and principles that made me believe that it was necessary to fight for that as well.
1: Enthusiasm. Belief in your cause. These are some really basic things that if you watch a lot of politics, if you consume a lot of news and politics and you follow the horse races, that you can forget and sort of grow kind of cynical. I know I have. And... You think that stuff doesn't matter. This is all just it's all just a calculation about who can win. And can you squeak th- policy a little bit to the left or a little bit to the right and settle for you settle for the candidate or, or for the party that is, is going to actually get you there by all general sort of quote unquote objective. Measures by polling data, by party membership, etc. But I wouldn't underestimate the power of enthusiasm and a real passion and belief in your cause and that you can win. That is infectious, it's not just a cold calculation. When you have people who you can just tell they just radiate from within themselves that they are so passionate and that they are so personally invested in making something happen, whether it's putting candidates from your party in office or whether it's a nonprofit that you're running or whatever it is that you're trying to make happen. (laughs) that is really, really infectious and it can really convince people to come on board with you because you believe it so powerfully, it's almost like you're willing it, you're willing it into happening. And that can lead to basically a tipping point of when you, you get enough people who really believe in something, if they believe that it's not a binary choice, that they do have a another option and, and this is it, for instance, for in the case of the libertarians, then you get to a point where actually, yeah, you can win because you've brought so many people on board. You've convinced so many people that you you can actually make this happen. And that's pretty much exactly what he told me.
2: I wanted to be able to do good and early on I I was worried that or I joined the Republican Party partly because of the ability to win. My change I guess was a bit more of a result of believing that libertarians can win.
1: There are only a handful of libertarians actually holding public office at various levels of government throughout the country. But if things continue the way that they do, and party politics is so incredibly tribal, and it is, like he said, such a turnoff, and the libertarians who are just overflowing with energy, just like little energizer bunnies on the the internet forums and knocking on doors and handing out flyers and things like that. If they continue with that level of dedication and enthusiasm, I wouldn't be surprised if we had a somewhat healthy, robust third-party option sometime you know, within my lifetime. I don't think that that's a bad thing. More choices, as a general rule, is is a good thing. It, it can it can split um, split factions to the point where you could have been a coalition and and now you're not, and now the the side that's totally against uh, what your coalition would have been for is is going to seize control. And yes, we know all that, but in a lot of senses, it's good to have more options. That's generally a pretty conservative way of thinking about things is more options is better and that's kind of part of why part of why I'm a capitalist but those are my takeaways you can go ahead and listen to that episode episode 30 with Eric Cooper and now now it is time for the woke of the week before we get into that though hey if you have an example of amazing wokeness or just something on the topic of woke or cancel coach, uh, cancel culture, go ahead and tweet me your examples at georgie underscore borman g e o r g i underscore B-O-O-R-M-A-N or at 180cast, which is much easier to spell and much easier to remember. Go ahead and use the hashtag Woke of the Week. This week, I would like to talk about Elizabeth Warren and her answer at the LGBTQ town hall just about a week ago. Uh, You may recall if you watched that or you watched the highlights, she said this.
0: Well, I'm going to assume it's a guy who said that. And I'm gonna say then just marry one woman. <laughs> I'm calling cool that. Assuming you can find one.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so funny. Assuming you can find one. What a great what a great joke. I mean it was kind of it was kind of funny, I have to admit. And uh so so a lot of people picked up on that. Oh my gosh, Elizabeth Warren has a funny sense of humor. And that's, that's cool. And, you know, just don't do it. It's like the same argument that they make for abortion. Don't like abortion? Don't have one. Don't like gay marriage? Marry a woman. You may not have caught how she elaborated on her perspective in the follow-up after that. And that is what I want to focus on for this segment.
0: In the church I grew up in, first song I ever remember singing is they are yellow, black, and white. They are precious in his sight. Jesus loves all the children of the world. And to me...
2: Can you sing it never- again? You
0: bet. Uh, you want to harmonize with me on this? <laughs> but, but to me, that is the heart of it. That was the basis of the faith that I grew up in. And it truly is about the preciousness Of each and every life. It is about the worth of every human
1: being. She's really taken something very, very significant from Christianity, and it really revolutionized the world this idea of intrinsic human value, intrinsic human dignity. So she's drawing it back to the foundation, back to this idea that every single human life is dignified inherently. Here's the thing, if Warren really believes that, she and the rest of the left wouldn't be so dead set on destroying, on criminalizing, first of all, anyone who believes in natural marriage. Because if your worth is intrinsic, you don't need to coerce the affirmation of other people to feel your worth, to be quote-unquote seen, and to quote-unquote not feel erased as... That um, that trans person, their name was Blossom, I think, said that they felt that black trans women were, were being erased. If you really believe and the rest of society really believes that you are in, intrinsically valued and of worth just in who you are, not in what you do or who you marry, then it, it is not it it should not be considered an assault on human rights to say i believe in natural marriage that marriage is is not it doesn't it doesn't apply to you it's not that you've ha- you're having a right deprived of you it's that marriage is fundamentally between a man and a woman and it it is that is what it is designed for. It is designed for their the procreation and rearing of those biological children, and it that therefore does not apply to your situation if you are not heterosexual. You can debate whether or not you think that that should be policy or not, but the idea that her and Cory Booker and Buttigieg and the rest of the, basically all of the Democratic candidates, almost, except maybe Tulsi Gabbard, I don't know, that they want to shut down and censor anyone who doesn't believe that because they believe that that is depriving somebody of their rights. Well, look, if you really believe in intrinsic worth and dignity, you wouldn't have to do that. You wouldn't have to coerce people Into supporting your opinion. That's not a real right. Real rights are rights that you have in your freedoms. They are not rights, they are not entitlements to coerce other people into doing things for you. That is a dead giveaway, but that is not an actual right. It is not a human right. If it requires you to coerce somebody else into doing things for you, it's not a right. And on top of that, I want to talk about something that would be really, really woke. Like, in the true sense that everybody should be woke. If Warren really believes that every human life has worth, why does she support abortion on demand until birth? That is the most benighted opinion of our age. And it's accepted by millions of people. Ignorant. Benighted evil, sinister. That's what that is. That is not woke. So if you really want to bring everything in line with this amazing, beautiful idea that God has given us, that people are created in his image and they are all loved by God, then you need to give up that stance and you need to really follow through on this idea that you value everybody, that you see everybody, that you are not willing to erase anybody. Those are my thoughts on the woke of the week. And this is normally the point of the podcast where we would take messages from the flip phone, but but there are no messages today. I know. I know, I'm sad too, because I love hearing from you. I cannot wait to check my answering machine, my virtual answering machine. So, you know what, next time, if you have some thoughts, don't be shy. I know a lot of people are are phone shy, and I'm phone shy, and it's taken a lot for me to overcome that, uh, to leave messages for random people, etc. But you don't need to worry about that at all. And if you don't like your voice message, you can just re-record it. I don't care. And if you would rather text the flip phone, you can leave a very lengthy text message and you can just communicate that way. Whatever you want to do. I really like hearing from you. I like having more engagement and learning from each other's perspectives. So, Again, the flip phone number is 323-999-1802. We are going to move right along to debunking some conventional wisdom. Again, circling back to the Democratic debate... I want to focus on something Tulsi Gabbard said, this time something I emphatically disagree with, but that is very controversial even on the right. She's talking about laws on the state level that challenge uh, Roe v. Wade as Supreme Court precedent and severely restrict abortion or claim to do so.
0: We see all the consequences of laws that you're referring to can often lead to a dangerous place as we've seen them as they're passed in other countries where a woman who uh, has a miscarriage past that six weeks could be imprisoned because abortion would be illegal at that point. Uh, I do, however, think that there should be some restrictions in place.
1: I actually wrote an article on this one or two years ago because there was an article written by um, Sarah St. Orange who— I communicate with on a regular basis and is a lovely person and has actually been on this podcast and gave a wonderful, very enlightening interview about why she believes in um, why she believes that abortion should be banned with no exceptions. And she has really amazing personal testimony on the subject. Um, Anyway, she wrote this article in which she made basically the case that Tulsi Gabbard has made that. If you criminalize abortion, if you criminalize early first trimester abortion, you're criminalizing miscarriage, and there's going to be women who are thrown in jail who just had a miscarriage and they they shouldn't be there, and it's totally unjust and cruel. I mean, really, it would be truly cruel to put somebody in prison on suspicion of abortion when they've just lost their child. That's a terrible, terrible, terrible thing that I would not wish on anybody, but this idea that that banning abortion leads to women being imprisoned for miscarriage or charged with abortion and sent to prison rests on the example the examples in South America there is this this famous group of women called las siete the, the 17 or sorry las Siete. The seventeen who are alleged, who ha- were allegedly sent to prison for miscarrying and being charged with abortion because abortion is illegal in El, Sa- El Salvador. So, that's allegedly false um, imprisonment of those women who maintain that they miscarried, and this example from El Salvador is put forward by pro-lifers, as well as um, people on the other side, that this is what's going to happen if we were to ban abortion in in America, that this is the likely scenario if we were to do this in the United States. And that's just not the case. I think that it rests on this faulty idea that El Salvador is an analogous system to what we have in the United States. And that's not the case. When you're looking at comparing, when, you, when you're trying to compare situations and to determine what would happen given certain scenarios like banning abortion, when you're looking for evidence, you need to look for evidence that is, as, that is based on as close an approximation to what you have. So if you're looking at what would happen in the U.S., you need to look at a country that is similar to the United States and see what happened there. That is the data that is most important. That is the data that is most valuable and can inform your decision on how to craft policy. You can't ignore what happens in Western countries who have similar systems of justice and then go ahead and Cherry pick examples from other countries who are not as similar because El Salvador's legal system is highly corrupted. In 2012, okay, 80% of El Salvador's judges were under investigation, and the vast majority had pending complaints against them. 80%. And then last time I checked, it was ranked um, in 2017, under Transparency International's Corruption Perception Index, it was ranked 33 out of 100 compared to the U.S.'s ranking of 75 out of 100. 33 compared to 75. Pretty big difference. And then also a lot of people a lot of people maintain that El Salvador has a structural bias against women and against the working class, which may or may not be true. I haven't been to El Salvador and immersed myself in the culture, but it's, it's, it's quite possible because that is a historically um, a situation that has been happening for thousands of years across the world. But so instead of looking at corrupt South America to, point to that and say, oh my gosh, look at these poor women, they were imprisoned for miscarriages. We need to look at countries that are similar. So let's look at the United Kingdom, okay? And in the United Kingdom, despite having some of the most permissive abortion laws in the Western world, they have managed to actually produce a handful of cases where illegal abortions were successfully prosecuted. Not really late-term abortions, Fairly early, like late first trimester, early second trimester. These were cases where the evidence was overwhelmingly clear that these women intentionally killed their preborn children. One woman was found to have uh, pur- procured uh, a abort- abortifacients and then left the remains of her preborn baby in a household trash can. Her roommates turned her in because they said the guilt was eating them up they knew that there was a baby in the trash can and the guilt was eating them up and so they turned her in so that is a case where there was absolutely evidence that this 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 woman did not miscarry that she actually pro- procured the chemicals necessary to kill her baby and then threw it out in the garbage as if it wasn't worth anything so the argument that women will be far far <sighs> I can talk. Hold on. The argument that women will be falsely imprisoned for miscarriage is tenuous at best because we don't see that happening in the UK and we do see a handful of cases where it was prosecuted and you're looking at a situation in which abortion is not banned, in in which there's a very permissive abortion laws, but you're still not allowed to to procure an abortion for yourself and That is what what happened um, in in the United Kingdom. So our standard in the United States, our standard for evidence for criminal cases is very high. And DIY abortion can, in many cases, leave a trail of evidence such as what I just mentioned, which is buying the uh, abortifacients, buying the um, misoprostol or mifepristone online, And that being able to be uh, demonstrated by forensic analysis that that happened or by text messages saying, yeah, um, you know, I'm going to do it today, blah, blah, blah. And this is really, really important to consider when you understand that DIY abortion is the future of abortion. There are already a lot of Organizations in place that are helping women in abortion restrictive areas of the world, even in America, helping women procure abortions for themselves that they can do at home. They're 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 sending them the the pills and they're giving them guidance on how to do it. And that is the future of abortion in America, whether we ban it or not. And refusing to do what we can in terms of putting in place a deterrent, putting in place um, a method by which we can have justice for the preborn, to protect those lives the way that we protect born people from murder by saying, you can't murder people, and if you do, there will be consequences, then we're not doing all we can to... Honor all human beings who have intrinsic dignity, as I said earlier, who are image bearers of God, and uh, we we can't do that. So I understand that this is a very, very controversial opinion, and the idea of prosecuting women for abortion just strikes a lot of people the wrong way. It strikes them as oppressive. It it strikes them as as uh completely insensitive to the situations that they might be in, you know they may be desperate, they may be being coerced, et cetera and the coercion thing is is another important uh aspect to talk about maybe we'll talk about that another time because that absolutely needs to be prosecuted as well if you're coercing somebody into killing their unborn child that's that's just heinous it's it's, it's absolutely evil but those are my thoughts on that. You have to look at situations that are as close an approximation uh, to to the case that uh, you're you're putting forward as possible. So, if you're looking at banning abortion in America, you need to look at how have people prosecuted abortions in in countries that are more similar to ours. You can't just cherry pick data from other countries because that uh, appeals to to emotions and it appeals to your your preconceived ideas of how things are going to go down. And with that, we have wrapped up a record-long breakdown session. (laughs) Don't forget, you can call a flip phone again at 323-999-1802. You can flip out on something I said, like maybe this last segment um, you can flip my position. Tell me how you flip-flopped or did a 180 on any topic. And again, that's 323 1802 And you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at 180cast. And just another quick reminder If you like the podcast, please go ahead and give it a review on iTunes. It only takes like two or three minutes um, to to rate it and and write a couple sentences on what you think. Even if you don't like the podcast, go ahead and rate it. I would like to hear from from you as well. I'm always happy to receive uh, feedback of any kind as long as you're not attacking me personally and calling me a horrible person. If you don't like the podcast, that's, that's totally cool. And again, you can follow me at Georgie underscore Borman. Until next time, when hopefully my throat is healed, seek the truth, share your values, and listen with your heart and your mind. God bless struggle let me see who i am what i need who i've got in the middle of the struggle or let me see who i am what i need who i've got in the middle of the struggle or let me see who i am what i need who i've got in the middle of the struggle or let me see who i am what i need who i've got to be